Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, we're talking with Andrew Delaney, Senior Manager of Social Media at HubSpot. Andrew, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Charlie. I'm excited to be here. So you and I used to work together at Red Bull and you've gone on to do some really cool things at HubSpot. I know your background, but can, can you share your background with the audience so that they can have an idea of who you are and what you're all about? Yeah, sure. I've been working in social now a little over 10 years. Started back in 2008, 2009, working, promoting concerts across different venues in the New England area. Really was giving me an opportunity to learn a lot about social and just kind of now that I've worked in it for, you know, 10 plus years, have really had a chance to see it evolve, seeing new platforms come up, new types of utility, new ways users share content. The platforms have evolved a lot. I think also user behavior has changed a lot. And it's just been a really exciting journey thus far. And I'm excited to see what comes next. Yeah. So you've been able to work at some some really cool brands, Live Nation, Red Bull, and now HubSpot. Talk about your approach to, to social media, right? So you've worked across different industries, you know, just hearing you talk about how you've worked in social for 10 years, that, that's a long time. Uh, not to make you feel old, but that's a long time. Uh-huh. And having, having worked across those, those different industries, it's an industry that's constantly changing. Can you talk a little bit about how you've set up your team at HubSpot? I think you and I have talked about this in the past in, in terms of setting up teams. Um, how have you set up your team at HubSpot to be able to kind of withstand that, that change that, that is just normal with social media? Yeah, I'm touching on your, kind of your first point. I'm super grateful to have had the chance to work in social for as long as I have. I think a lot of people maybe in the past have seen social as like a short-term thing or stepping into something else, but I'm pretty committed to having a career in social, um, which is maybe not unique, but maybe not the most common path either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is just because when I joined social, I felt like it was still the wild, wild west, at least in terms of businesses um, and, you know, pitching products to consumers versus, you know, it's been a consumer product all along, but the business side was back in 2008, 2009, but still really starting to develop and having worked in it for so long, I still feel like it's the wild west and mm-hmm. I still feel like there's new changes coming, new platforms, new features, and you have to continually stay on your toes to figure out what those are and to adapt and to change, to make use of them. And yeah. that's what keeps the role so interesting for me. Jumping over to your question. Yeah. So why don't you just tell us like, you know, with social always changing, how have you structured your team at HubSpot? Sure. So my team is structured in four pillars. The first one is content, um, and that's the team that covers all of our written content, our video content, design content, all the stuff we publish across our channels. The next pillar is insights, analytics, reporting, whatever you want to call it, and that's a team that builds all our dashboards, reports on all our performance, and provides insights across the whole team into what's working best. It's kind of like a pillar that extends across the entire team. Mm-hmm. Another pillar is our campaigns pillar, and we work in that pillar to support all the different teams within HubSpot to get all their different products and services and initiatives and launches and announcements, all that good stuff out to the world. And they're kind of like the main point of contact for the business as a whole internally to then coordinate with the rest of the team and get all that messaging out into the world. And the last one is the community team. And that's where all our publishing, our community management, engaging with the audience, kind of keeping track of what's going on um, on social. And I find the four are set up in that way. And really, just if you think about it, like none of those teams can be successful on their own. They all Mm -hmm. need someone else. And it really forces people to work really cross-functionally Uh, which I think is a great benefit. Another upside and something you've probably seen before is other businesses might structure teams by platform where there's like a Facebook team, an Instagram team, like a YouTube team. Um, I prefer not to structure teams like that. I think it creates less flexibility. You do sacrifice probably a bit of expertise where if there's, if you have enough people to have people focused on each different platform, you can build a high level of expertise in those platforms. But the downside is as new platforms come up, you can't always quickly enough adapt into taking on new platform with that structure. Another downside is with a structure that's platform based, it creates more competition amongst the team itself. So like if the Facebook team is doing well and the Instagram team is not doing well, it's creating conflict between those two teams. And it might not necessarily be the work they're doing. It might just be the audience that exists in that channel or the way this was this campaign was messaged or the goal of the campaign. And so if you start looking at it on like a very granular level, it can kind of create more competition between team members. And I don't I don't think that's healthy. I do think like some competition is healthy in the sense of 
encouraging growth and encouraging people to be better. But I don't think team structure is the right way to solve for growth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, the one thing that I think about just in everything that you're saying also is there's the flexibility of, you know, the outside world with with different platforms and, and channels coming and going. The second thing that I think about is different channels have different purposes, right? So, you know, if it, let's say for the sake of example here, if Facebook is all about, you know, driving traffic and, you know, Twitter is more about customer service. If you're on the Twitter team and Facebook's getting, the Facebook team is getting, you know, big ups because they're driving a ton of traffic and the Twitter team's like, hello, we're the ones here who are like, close to really super close to the customer here and answering things and maintaining that sort of thing, those aren't necessarily aligned. And so I think that does actually make a ton of sense that it is able to be like a more cohesive unit in that way and more kind of holistic coverage. So that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing I think that I would, I would love to get your take on, I think in my experience, you know, when social first started, it was this thing that kind of just sat in marketing right? And now it's just become this beast that, you know, it touches every aspect of the business. It's, it's marketing, it's, there's employee um, advocacy, there's so many different pieces of it um, that touch things. And I've found in the past setting up teams that way that can work cross-functionally um, is essential because yeah, social isn't one of those little areas of marketing anymore. It now spans across, you know, whether it's customer care whether it's investor relations, whether it's sales, whether it's brand building, you know, whether it's employee retention, like having private social media accounts for just employees, there's no real limit on it. And we've seen it social as a whole be deployed in so many different ways. So structuring your team like that actually does make a lot of sense in my opinion. And so it's interesting to hear you say that. It also makes me feel good that I did things the right way when I was building teams. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's, it, I think the context you add definitely helps make it really clear and really kind of illustrates some of the different benefits and disadvantages to structuring teams in different ways. I think there's a lot you can talk about on that topic, um, but it's definitely something that I enjoy thinking about. Yeah. So switching, continuing on. So we've kind of talked about team structure and, and, you know, obviously an important part of, of marketing and social specific is strategy. Can you just give us like a bit of a background on like how you approach strategy? I've always found you as a very strategic guy. Um, when we used to work together, I always used to kind of come and, and unpack my thinking to you and be like, am I thinking about this in the right way? And I, I just always have found your, the way that you approach problem solving has been very, very insightful. So I'd love it if you could like break that down a little bit, talk about, you know, how you approach strategy, how you kind of maybe develop those skills, anything you can kind of add there would be useful. Sure. Yeah. When I think about strategy, the first thing I think about is goals and goal setting and really trying to make sure I understand the problem at hand so that as I work through that problem, I'm solving for the needs of my business or my team or my customers or my clients. And I think that's always the right place to start. I tend to be like a realist as well. Uh, and like, what do you mean by that? I'd love to know what you mean by realist. Like I love thinking about what could be. And I think later we'll chat about the future and we'll talk about a lot of things that could be. So I can yeah. definitely get out of my realist mindset. But when it comes to like really thinking about what makes sense for like the business where I work in or for if I'm like consulting for somebody else, is really trying to think of like, hey, like your business might not be like the number one brand on social media. That's okay. And, but trying to like do that as like tomorrow is also not realistic. Yeah. And I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people who want to do great, huge, big things. And like, yeah, those are great ideas, but like, it's just not attainable. And it's weird because at the same time, it's like, I believe so much in the value and power of social media. So to have to tell someone like, yeah, like that, it's just not realistic. It's really hard because it makes it almost sound like I don't believe in it. I do. It's yeah. just like there's a, there's a path to get there. It's not overnight. Well, and I, I think that I, I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, how many, there's almost like this myth of virality, right? With social media, it's like you, you hear these stories where it's like, oh, you know, with, with an iPhone and, you know, a couple, like, like with an iPhone, I made this video and I got, you know, 10 million views. And now like my business has exploded and blah, blah, blah. Like I think a lot of people are like, oh, it's that easy. Cool. I have an iPhone. I'll do that. And on one hand, I admire the low barrier to entry or, you know, the democratization of social media content creation, that sort of thing. Yeah, but then too. I think, I think on the flip side of that, you start, you start to see from a business perspective, you people, being, people have kind of almost not people, so, people in business have started to, well, I've seen this in the past where they're like, oh yeah, it's just social media. Like go figure it out, get a phone and go. Like, why do you need, why do you need budget? Why do you need structure? Why do you need these things? Like, can't you just go make a video that gets us a ton of views and like go from there? 
And so, yeah, I, I find it tough like with you where I'm like, I do, I do believe in the value of it, but I think that, you know, the, the gone are the days of like, oh yeah, just go and kind of shoot something or, or create a piece of content or, or, or do this without really thinking about it. Like, I think you do have to look before you leap because of how saturated it is. So it's interesting to hear you talk about that and, and, and have experienced that as well, because it's going to continue that way. Like I, I, I believe that we're still going to see more and more people on, on social media. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing internet usage around the globe go up. We're seeing, you know, social platforms are growing and getting bigger. More people are coming online. Um, and that, that means it's going to be noisier, which means that you're going to have to, you know, look before you leap. And I'm using air quotes here. Yeah. I, I, I also really like what you said about practicality. I think that's something where it is, it is that balance of, yeah, you know, you, you want to go and, and, I'm using air quotes here again, go viral. <laughs> that word makes me like kind of cringe. Mm-hmm. I think that what you said about going back to goals and like linking things back to business objectives through a business context is bang on. I think, yeah, too, and thinking about like virality, to me, it's kind of like gambling, right? Like if you're going to make some really high quality piece of content, like the chances of that like really striking gold, like it could totally happen. And maybe that would be, would be great. But that's just like the realist side of me, like the chance of that actually happening is so slim that I'm, I have much more of like a non flashy approach. And I think maybe that's just me as a person, but at Red Bull, like say we have a video that is, you know, 200 million views, right? Like in our team, that's great. And that's a big success. And that's wonderful. But when I look at like over the course of a year, if we just keep grinding it out, what we can accomplish, that's like a small percentage of what we were like successful with. That's just a small percentage of what we actually achieved. And in the grand scheme of things, not that big of a deal. Yeah. Um, And it's crazy to be like, yeah, 200 million views. What's the big deal? But all the little pieces of content we made all year leading up to it have far more of an outcome than that one big piece. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think about like, it's almost like the sum, the sum of the parts is worth more than the one, the one big one, right? Or the, sum, or the one big one is because of the sum of the parts. <laughs> right, that's another way to think about it. Right? You're building up that audience, you're continuing to engage them, to retain them, and then you're dropping some awesome piece of like A plus content. Like now you have a much better chance of that being successful versus you have a tiny little community and you're dropping a piece of content that costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like the chance of it doing something is probably slim. That's definitely an interesting topic is like this idea of, of, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past is, you know, raw versus polished. Like what does the perfect piece of content? And we're never going to get to that. Like, this is the perfect thing. Um, and yeah, there is, there is absolutely luck that goes into it. I like to think that, you know, the good, the good get lucky, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> the harder you work, the luckier you get. That's a phrase that my mom always, always says to me. Mm-hmm. But I, I think about, yeah, there is some things that you, you can't explain. Like even from an analytics perspective, like there are always anomalies. Like, you know, our team at Right Metrics sees that. I'm sure you and your team at HubSpot have seen that where you're like, yeah, this went well. We don't really know why, but it went well. <laughs> and, and there may not be a way that you can kind of recreate that as well. It's kind of like a, a nice transition, actually. When we look at different pieces of content, we don't normally measure success or failure based on a single piece of content because there's way too many variables that could imp- impact why that did well or why that didn't do well. Instead, we, we set up a lot of content tagging and we look at a number of different variables across a number of different pieces of content so we can try to look at trends over time. And I think yeah, right, metric does a lot of that as well. Yeah. So I I love this transition that we're going into here. So the one thing I wanted to ask you, like we were talking about strategy and now we're kind of going into like how analytics and insights play into your approach to strategy. So there was something that, that uh, I was a big fan of that you used to do at Red Bull and you used to call it party time. Can you explain what party time is, what party time was or is or was, however you want to frame it. And I mean, I think that's something that I, I always looked at and I only went to a handful of the meetings, but I was like, yo, I love this because you guys did such great analytics and insights work. So can you just kind of like talk about that, give the background of how it started, where it came from, the value that it delivered to the business, and and then we can kind of take things from there. Party time started off just kind of like this, just a conversation that evolved into a series of conversations and then became a thing across the business at Red Bull, which was pretty wild. I used to have a slide that explained how party time to work and it, and it was like a little a little wheel or flywheel. And the first phase was like, let's talk about ideas. And we would just talk about different things that we thought might be interesting to try. The next step would be like, you know, can we measure any of these things? Okay, like what can we do? How can we do this? Or can we not do it? Or is there another way to do it? 
Then the next step would be like, okay, let's create content to try these different ideas. And then the last step would be, well, I guess there's five steps. The fourth step would be to publish that content, see how it does. And then mm -hmm. the next party time or a few party times later, because sometimes content doesn't all get done in a week, is to look at how it did and to kind of measure those results and to keep trying new content formats, new ways to look at things, just to kind of keep trying to optimize the content we're making. Mm -hmm. At Red Bull, we were already operating at such a high scale that like a 1% improvement um, could be huge um, yeah. for the business. And it was much more of us trying to find the small areas we could improve versus some radical step change. And I think depending on where your business is and how it's how advanced it is, if you can take on those big like sweeping changes and make those huge radical changes for amazing growth, like you should totally prioritize that first. But once you're a little bit more established and um, hopefully have already covered a lot of that like white space, then you kind of need to take the next step and start to figure out where you can make those incremental gains. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things that I always found really interesting, and I think that our, our listeners would really, really appreciate is talk a little, about, a little bit about how you tag content, right? So I think, you know, traditionally digital marketers or, or social marketers or marketers in general have always kind of looked at, and I'm again using air quotes here, vanity metrics, like shares, comments, views, that sort of thing. Talk about how you approach like setting up tagging. You set up tagging at Red Bull for party time. You kind of alluded to earlier that you've done similar at HubSpot. What's your approach to that? Like kind of talk about that because I think, you know, looking at those vanity metrics or those ones that are easy to count, yes, they're easy to count and you can pull meaning from them. But I think the way that you set up your content tagging is, is really, really useful as well and interesting to, to hear more about that. I'd say, first of all, I can't take credit for this. It's, um, there was a woman on my team named Sean, and she's definitely the, the creator of the earliest content tagging <laughs> that I ever saw. Yeah. Um, and that's really what inspired Party Time was the work she did. Um, and I've just, you know, taken it and done it a lot more. Rode the party wave. Yeah, pretty much. Like, we started building that together and then just kept, kept it riding. So I hope, I hope Sean is doing well. You know, in talking about strategy and continuing down that train of thoughts, obviously analytics and, and insight plays into that strategy. One of the things that I found when, when we used to work together at Red Bull, you know, with party time, you guys had a really interesting approach about what metrics you would look at and how you were doing content tagging and that sort of thing. So can you expand on just that approach in general, how it came to be, and then why you found it useful? I mean, there were a lot of like, you know, existing metrics that are common across social media we'd use to measure performance. But when we tried to go deeper, a lot of times we were looking at ways to improve our content and we would use content tagging to do that. We would create different custom fields. If you have like social tools, some social tools allow you to do this in them directly. If you have a Google sheet, you can do it in a Google sheet. But basically just like make a column, add, a, add the name of the column, and then a bunch of values within it. And an example could be like, let's say you're doing a bunch of Instagram content and you're testing different font colors. You could have a field that's called the font color and the colors could be red, blue, green, whatever. And then as you're making different content, you can see what's working best. Now, bad example because most brands you already have your brand colors and you can only play so much but maybe you do that across two or three of your primary and secondary colors you switch them when you can um, other examples of fields would be like aspect ratio or is the caption a statement or a question or uh, this was one of our rehearsals you ever did like uh does the post have an emoji in it does that make any difference oh interesting um, just all different ways to think about things just to see what would drive more engagement from the audience and yeah. then if we were trying to pull those insights from a single post is not usually enough because maybe people just like the post. Um, yeah. There could be, it's just not enough to know for sure. So we would do it over a wide range of posts to figure out like, you know, trying to just control as many different variables as we could and to see over time if there's any trends we see with any certain types of posts doing better or worse than others. A lot of times results are like inconclusive and that's kind of something you have to be okay with, but there's definitely a lot of good findings we would find along the way. So it made it super worthwhile. Yeah. And it's, it's just like one of those things where, you know, just cause you can drill down into that one specific post doesn't necessarily mean you should, right? Is, am I, am I, am I hearing that right? Yeah. I think that's definitely, that's definitely part of it. And the other thing too, it's like, uh, one of the tough things we found later on with doing this was you get into such a place where things are so optimized, it gets hard to try new things and you have to really make time to try new things and bring in new fields and to try new experiments. Mm -hmm. Even if like you kind of think they might not work, 
Because um, otherwise, you just get to this place where it's like you're super optimized to you know what's worked for the last three months, but then you just kind of grinding that out, and it's like, okay, what's next? And just kind of continuing to ask yourself that question, trying new things, is a is a crucial part of it. Where if you just focus on the data, you can definitely overlook. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, okay, this this dovetails kind of perfectly into what I want to talk about. Before we kind of talk about the future of social media, let's. I think it would be important to talk about the present. We're currently in the middle of a global pandemic. And I think a lot of marketers, well, what I've heard from talking to a lot of marketers, whether it be our clients or friends that, that work in marketing, they're trying to figure out how to navigate it. All of us are trying to figure out how to navigate it. Can you talk about how, how you're approaching you know, marketing in general during a pandemic? What kind of steps did you go through? What are some things that you're keeping top of mind as we navigate through kind of these times where the world is more or less on pause. Yeah, it's definitely interesting times right now. We've made a lot of changes as things started to develop. The first thing I've always learned in different, let's call them crisis situations, is we just try to cut back, at least in the very short term. Like you don't want to be part of the noise because it can come off as really insensitive and can really Mm -hmm. hurt your brand. So that's generally the safest first step. Sure, maybe there's still opportunity you're missing, but I'd rather sacrifice a little opportunity in the short term and not do any long-term brand damage. I think that's just an important thing to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But then it's kind of like you start to think about like, you know, what people are going through. Like, how can you help the, you know, the people in your social audience, your customers, your partners? Like, what, are there any opportunities there where you can kind of do some good um, that would also align with like your brand and what you can do and what you can change? Like, I would never you know, talk about anything medical related because I don't have any sort of expertise there. But if we're talking about like how to run virtual events, like there's a time after a little while where people are probably interested in running virtual events. Like they're trying to figure out, okay, how can I still grow my business? What can I still be doing? And I think there's different types of content you can make and you can share a lot of what you've learned that can be valuable to those people without being insensitive. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly a fine line to walk. Yeah, it is definitely a balance. I think the thing that I would add is that it's always going to be uncomfortable. You can't please everyone, right? Like I feel like that's just like a principle in life. Like you can't please everyone. There's probably some, some, well, there is definitely an aspect of that that plays into business. So I completely agree. To continue the thought that you were talking about with, you know, brands having to go quiet and, and there is a risk of, of offending people. One of the things that you and I chatted about previously was this idea of, of brands just kind of not really saying anything, but bringing people together. I'd love to get an understanding of like, what, is, what do you mean by that when it comes to social? And I think that this will kind of tie into what we're going to talk about next, which is the future of social. But yeah, what do you mean when you, you talk about brands bringing people together and this idea of community? Yeah, I think it's super valuable to create a space for consumers to be able to chat with each other. Like we already see it now where, you know, you or I might be researching a product and we read product reviews and we care about what other people are saying. And it's almost sometimes like you might trust the review on the internet of someone you don't know more than what the brand is saying about the product themselves. And that is kind of, kind of incredible to me where it's like someone on the street said something to you, like you might not like, take their word for it. But if you read it on a product review, like on Amazon or something, like you might be like, yeah, I'm gonna try it because this random person suggested it. And I think there's more we can do there and bringing people together through Facebook groups or other channels. Having people have conversations with each other, share what they're learning, make recommendations, I think that is super valuable. And I think as you can build, if you can build a more human connection with it, and if you can build a more human connection between your brand and those people by creating that space, it really allows people to build a lot of affinity towards your brand without your brand needing to be such a big part of the conversation. Yeah. And I think with social media in the past, it's like friends in your network sharing content with other friends in your network or brands that you follow sharing content with you or maybe putting ads in your feed or whatever. But one of the things to keep in mind is when you're seeing content from your friends, you might be friends with them for a particular reason. Maybe you go cycling together and you have that in common. But if that person you know, post something about their car, maybe you're not into cars and that's just not for you. So you're seeing a lot of content in your feeds that is not that relevant to you beyond the connection you have to that person. So when you start having different groups around topics and communities around those topics, you can find people with, you know, maybe similar views as you or maybe different views than you, if that's what you're interested in learning more about. And it really creates a place for people to expand their networks and to build community in that specific space, like that, that niche with people who are interested in talking about that same topic. And I try I think of like you and I, we can talk about social forever. If we were in a social group together, it would be great. Right. But like there might be things that you're interested in that like we wouldn't talk about just because, you know, we don't share those same interests and that's okay. And it doesn't like hurt our relationship at all, yeah. but you might 
want to have other people in your network that you do talk to those things about. And I think for brands, like it's the same way. Like I might be really passionate about a brand and you might not be. So us having a chat about that kind of feels weird. Whereas if I can find other people who feel the same way about that brand, I think that creates a big opportunity. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And so taking that a step further, as everybody's at home right now, as we're recording this, uh, or they should be at home, stay home. Uh, and how do you think that the current landscape is going to accelerate that? Or do you think that the current landscape is going to accelerate this idea of, you know, we've seen a lot of brands do a lot of good right now in terms of community. One example that I think about is Lululemon. They've like really invested in, in community over the last, you know, since they've kind of started. And that's something that I've talked about previously on another episode. Um, but this idea of, of digital community, do you think that the current climate that we're in or the current landscape that we're in is going to accelerate this type of behavior of brands just kind of setting up the area for people to be able to come together and, and bond or form a connection over a shared passion? I totally think that this shift is going to accelerate. The thing is, I don't think most brands are equipped and prepared to take it on. So I think we're going to see a lot more user-created communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of brands are going to be left out, at least at Ooh, the start. That's um, interesting. I like this. <laughs> because I think this shift is really forcing people to find new solutions to their problems. And I don't mm -hmm. think brands are like as aware of all that's happening in that space right now. And I think while groups were and still are a huge opportunity, I think this shift that we're going through right now is going to make it more difficult for brands. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes me think back to, you know, the, the rise of kind of unbranded branded accounts. So what I mean by that is, you know, I, I think there was an account that you and I probably talked about back in the day. Uh, it's, it's the NFL's like check down account. So it's, it's an account that's run by the NFL but it's more of like a theme page. Um, and I think at Red Bull, they have, you know, the POV page or that sort of thing. There are a bunch of different theme accounts out there. There's nothing new. But the fact that those theme accounts were being run by brands, I thought was like very, very smart at the time. And, you know, we're talking a couple of years ago when that stuff started or, or more. What do you think brands are missing in terms of doing the same thing with groups? Why haven't they seen it? Or why aren't they seeing it that way? Like when you say people are, you think brands are going to miss this? Why? The examples that you, you pulled on the NFL checkdown account is a great example. And that was definitely like an example of a brand building up a community, building the community to really go after a specific people with a specific interest. And I think that's great. And I think that opportunity still does exist in groups. I just think the current um, like situation in society right now is forcing more people to create more groups and are really looking for that place to connect. And I don't think in these last few weeks, brands have been as active and rapidly building it out um, those groups. And up until this situation happened, I don't think they needed to be. I think there was a lot more runway there. But now I think that space is going to be much more cluttered just because people are creating groups out of necessity. And I think that it's going to be just be harder for brands to, you know, capitalize on that. I still think there's opportunity there. I don't want to overstate it. Mm -hmm. But I just think that the path is going to start to become a little bit more difficult. Just like I don't know, creating a new Facebook page, right? Like when you do this way back when it was pretty easy to grow the page, you do it today, it's just that much harder. Yeah. And so what would your, what would your advice be? Like it is a saturated market out there right now. And you know, the, the one thing is that the, if you think about like, I go, I go back to supply and demand, right? The demand is super high. People are sitting at home. You're seeing internet usage, you know, go up. You're reading articles about, I think, what was it in Europe? Like the, the government asked, you know, Netflix and YouTube to downgrade their, mm -hmm. the quality so that the, the infrastructure that's in place could handle it. What can brands do to kind of cut through the noise today as, as we kind of start to enter, you know, this, this next phase or new normal? I think that this next phase is going to really create a lot of different opportunities in social media for brands and for users, whether it be new platforms that come up or new utility within platforms and new features for people to use and for brands to use. And while it can be really hard in your day-to-day -day to make time to try those new features and to try those new platforms, I think if you have a brand that like can do it, I think it's hugely important to be an early adopter. Because for me, if, if I try a new platform for a brand and it doesn't work out, okay, we, maybe we wasted some time or some resources or some money, but that to me is not as big a problem as if we like kind of miss, miss the wave, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then trying to catch up is so much harder and it'll yeah. cost you so much in the long run. 
Yeah. Try everything once. I feel like that's a good life motto. Try everything yeah. once and then, and then yeah, test and, and see if it actually makes sense. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about behaviors because I think this is something that you and I have both talked about previously that, that we're interested in. Do you think, you know, the one example I go to is in retail, right? Instagram released shoppable Instagram tags a while back. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, when that came out, people were like, oh, this is the future, right? And then I've said this before, but people weren't necessarily like Instagram didn't all of a sudden overnight just come become their like only revenue generator. You know, maybe if you're an e-commerce brand, you still get a lot of traffic and conversion from Google. You still get a lot of traffic and conversion from Facebook or other channels, but people were like kind of throwing their arm out there and going, this is the future, like Instagram shoppable tags. We're only going to shop on Instagram. I think, you know, what we've seen with other things like Peloton or, you know, even even Zoom, like happy hours, that sort of thing. Do you think there are some behaviors out there that are, that are going to stick and be accelerated by this, i.e. digital fitness or whatever? And are there others where you think, you know, I think about house party, like house party is killing it right now because people are trying to get connected. After this kind of go, whatever our new normal is after this, do you think house party, like, is there going to be a massive drop off? Because people are going to be like, oh, well now, yeah, I can go outside with my friends. I don't have to sit on an app. I'd love to get your take on, you know, things that you've seen or things that you're reading or things that you're like, oh yeah, this is cool. This is hyped, but not. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as we come out of the situation that the usage will drop, but I think that it's created a new pattern that will stay. So I don't think it's going to go back to where, like say something like Zoom or House Party. I don't think it'll ever be as small. And I use small very like, yeah, uh, roughly as it was prior to this. I think it's going to stay a much bigger part of society and of our culture. I think we'll also continue to see growth in digital fitness. I don't see that going anywhere, but similar to Zoom, I think it'll it'll decrease as to how it is now because I think once this is over, people will want to go back outside, but they'll want to be like careful about how they go outside and how they choose to spend their time. So I think it'll be a slow a slow exit, let's say. Okay, so you lead social at at a large brand. What are you most excited about? with this whole thing, right? Like, I think there's been a lot of kind of doom and gloom, like, you know, there's been a lot of talk about recession. And, you know, obviously, a lot of people are, are being impacted by this. What are the things that you that get you excited about where things are going? Yeah, I think, you know, people chatting more in a video, I think is super interesting. When I think about house party and zoom and like messenger calls, WhatsApp calls, there's so many different platforms that are doing like video chat, FaceTime, like whatever. The thing I wonder is like coming out of this, it's still so fragmented. I wonder if it's always going to be that fragmented or if like one will win. Kind of like, you know, maybe you say Amazon is like the go-to place for buying stuff and having it shipped to your home. Like maybe you'd say that. Like when you think of like video chat, is there like a winner? I don't think there is yet. And I don't know if, I don't know if there ever will be, but it's really interesting to think about where we're at right now. And like, okay, if you were going to guess who would be that winner, who would it be? If I was going to guess, oh, I think it's, it's an interesting one. I think about my mind initially goes to Facebook because they have Instagram, they have WhatsApp, they have messenger. And I don't know, have you taken a video call through Instagram? I have not. No, it's I've done amazing. Messenger, it's amazing. Like, I don't know how else to say it. It's amazing. And, and I actually did this pretty recently. I'd encourage anybody listening to try this out if they haven't. Uh, taking a video call through, through Instagram was fascinating for a couple of reasons. Number one, the quality was great. So as you would expect, like audio quality, mm-hmm. video quality, great. The thing that really got me was, and this is like definitely like speaks to the nerd in me, but the thing that got me was I started applying filters to myself, which you, you can do. So I'd apply, you know, a unibrow filter, like the kissy hearts on the cheeks. I think I made myself into a Pokemon at one point and still incredible quality. The filter was like perfectly mapped to my, to my head. I'm moving around. I'm sticking my tongue out like a, like a goofball. And again, no lag, no nothing. And then Mm -hmm. on top of that, I applied the filter. So I'm talking to someone. I had the filter applied. I'm doing all this goofy stuff. It looks great. It sounds great then I can actually minimize it and it goes into the corner and I can still scroll through my feed while I'm talking to someone. And so like, as you start to layer on all those things, I was just shocked by the quality. And so then, and I'll go even a step further, then you can actually co-view things. So I was throwing up posts that I was seeing to the video call all in one place. And, and that's something where I was like, whoa, damn, like from, from a nerdy computer aspect, that's really cool. From an experience aspect, I can do all the different things that 
that I would like to do, which is using goofy filters and that sort of thing. And then on top of it, it sounded great. And then to tie that kind of all together in a bow, it's on Instagram where a ton of people, me included, already spend a lot of time. So if I was going to make that prediction, I would think that, that Facebook would be the one, and I say Facebook here, Instagram would be the, the one because, you know, they just do such a kick-ass job of that. Now, mm-hmm. that said, um, I, was at, I recently joined House Party, and I, the way that, I'm new to House Party, so the, the way that I joined that, I was like, okay, what's this house party thing about? People are yelling about it. You know, okay, I'll go check it out. Download the app. I'm like, oh yeah, it looks cool, whatever. Um, and the thing that was so fascinating to me was the idea or the, the feature that they've built in around network effects. So when I joined, you know, obviously it's like, do you want to plug in your Facebook friends? Do you want to plug in your Snapchat contacts? Do you want to plug in your phone contacts? So they make it really easy to like add friends, so to speak. That's social media basics. Like most platforms are doing that. The thing that I thought was fascinating though is once you're sitting in house party and you're kind of on it, there are different rooms that you can join, right? Like that's the basis of the app. What was so fascinating was you only need to be connected to one person to be able to join a certain room. So I would look at the rooms that were available to join and I might've only been connected or friends with one person and there was a room of eight other people and I could join that room. And so the discovery in that app I thought was really, really fascinating Mm -hmm. because I was able to, you know, instead of just having one, it was, yeah, okay, you import your contacts, da, da, da. And then all of a sudden it just starts to compound on itself. And so that was an aspect of house party that I thought was, is probably what has fueled this kind of like massive spike. You know, obviously people are sitting at home, but the second thing it's easy to get on. And then the third thing is like the compounding network effect. Mm -hmm. So I would say like, you know, all of that said, house party was a really cool experience. I think they're owned by the same company that owns Fortnite. And while that's very encouraging, I mean, Facebook's Facebook. How are you going to like, they already have so many people on, on Instagram, but yeah, what do you think? Do you agree with me? Do you disagree? I I think it's a really interesting example as you brought up where I think with the Instagram example in the sense of all those different features you talked about, like a video call, not new. A lot of companies do video calling, right? Um, A place where you're already connected to like a pretty big network. Okay. There's a lot of social platforms. You have a lot of, people on you have like all the contacts in your phone not that new the filters tons of companies now use filters like not that new i mean sure there's like customization and everything but it sounds like to me with instagram it's just the way they package that experience and how smooth it was is what made it so good there's nothing like that unique about what they did they just did it so well yep. um whereas house party it, the feature i have not really used house party but having the random person in your contacts join a call with other like you that they know and other random people to me that's like a new feature that no one else is doing and you're it reminds absolutely me right of when like snapchat say launched stories um or even snapchat when it launched snaps like way back it created like a new feature that a lot of other platforms like took and adopted and then other people have you know put that into that platforms with varying degrees of success is house party and this like feature that they've created is that like the next Snapchat story in the sense of that feature that is created that connects different people in different ways and creates like that use of that feature. I I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I think to me, that's like the big thing that stands out there. Yeah. And, and I think you like, I, I didn't articulate it as well as you just did there, but I think that like with, with, with people joining, it makes me, I think back of, it's like the serendipitous nature of when you run out to someone, when you run into someone when you're in town, right? Like you're like, oh, hey, how are you? But doing that digitally. And that was the first time that I was on a platform where I felt I was like, oh, this is cool. Like there were people that I hadn't talked to in a while. And next thing you know, we're on a video chat. That's someone that I would never video chat otherwise. Like I I wouldn't necessarily do it, but here I am. And it was like that surprise and delight. Um, and, and, the fact that it, it came together in a, in a digital ecosystem, I was just like, whoa. And that's like what drew me to it. And I remember saying to people, I was like, yeah, I'm on this thing, this new app that's house party. And I'm like, I don't remember when I kind of like fell for something like this. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I really like the serendipitous nature of like running into someone, you know, digitally. Because before it wouldn't be that instant, right? The whole app is designed to be video chat. Whereas, you know, yeah, everyone has that, you know, friend from high school who, who connects on Facebook, you become Facebook friends, you lurk each other's photos and on you go with your life, right? Like <laughs> that's kind of no harm, no foul. You continue on. Whereas this, the fact that it has the video chat element, um, I just think that that's, 
it's unique. And, and you're right. It absolutely is a new feature that has been rolled out. What I'd love to get your take on and, and what I, if I was, a, if I was going to predict, I wouldn't be surprised if that feature gets taken and re-replicated across the Facebook ecosystem. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think there's a, a huge chance of that happening. I think with house party, the, the really interesting thing about that feature is that you mentioned the word discovery earlier. It's forcing, mm-hmm. not, it's not forcing, but it's creating the opportunity for you to discover, discover other people and other connections. And I think a, what's happened for a long time on Facebook is it's really all about privacy and focusing on the people that you kind of already know. I think with the addition of groups, that's really creating the opportunity for you to connect with other people with different interests. And it also kind of, if I throw it over to TikTok, I think one of the interesting things about TikTok is how when you open it, it shows you like the for you page and it's not people that you follow. It's just, well, there's some people you follow, but it's also a lot of random new content where the focus is really on discovery. And I think for House Party, again, as someone that hasn't really used the app, like you can do a video chat with your like, friend and your contacts on so many different platforms, but that's probably not why you use House Party. You use House Party for the chance of the random person joining. Do you think mm-hmm. that's like, is that why you use it or is it like, I, I don't know, but now like, that you mention it, probably. <laughs> yeah. Which is really interesting to think about the psychological aspect of that. Cause like if, if you and I were going to video chat, I wouldn't go on house party to add you. We, I'd just hit you up on any one of the other platforms. Like I'd only go on house party to add you if I wanted to see who else would join. Yeah. That's real. I mean, that's some like deep psychological stuff. Like, yeah, I wonder like, why do you choose? the platform that you choose to video chat to your earlier point, right? There's all these different platforms. And, and that's kind of one of the things that I was thinking about when I think about Facebook, right? Like, cause I believe Facebook messenger has video chat. WhatsApp has video chat. Uh, Instagram has video chat. And so I'm like, it's the same thing. Is it more than just like the skin in which you want to use it? Right? Like, Oh, you, mm-hmm. you, you're a, you're a messenger person. You're a WhatsApp person. You're a, an Instagram person. Like, will we get to the point where, you know, you and I can hop on a video chat, but what you see is Facebook Messenger and what I see is Instagram, but it's still Facebook, right? Like it's, it's like you can almost choose your own, your own skin on your end or your own user interface. Yeah, I feel like, I think Mark Zuckerberg hinted at that at one of his, you know, last, not last, but a while ago now, but like kind of having like the shared inbox across all the different platforms. Yeah. And I think maybe that was meant more for like written messages. However, I would think for video chat and stuff like, I think someday we'll see that. I'm sure in, in the not too distant future. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. I wonder if that's probably tied to a bigger conversation about not being able to be split up, <laughs> you know? So here's how you put all the platforms together so that they don't actually get forced to be spun off from a, a regulatory <laughs> perspective. Who knows? Not going to, not yeah. going to open that can of worms. We'll, we'll sure, leave that sure. at that. I want to talk, what you said about TikTok and the discoverability was really interesting. I actually have a, uh, something that there's a book, um, that I read called Hitmakers, and it's by a guy named Derek Thompson. Uh, he's a writer for The Atlantic, and it's basically like you know wh- why things become popular. And in in that book, he he talks about um, there was this industrial designer. I believe his name. I'm butchering his name. I think his name is Raymond Louis. And basically, he talks about this thing that's called the Maya principle. And the Maya principle Ooh. is an acronym for most advanced yet accessible. And so the example that he uses in the book, and I suggest you read the book, like he's brilliant. I follow this guy on Twitter and, and I think he has a couple podcasts and whatever. Anyway, the example that he uses in the book is he actually talks about, about Spotify's um, discover algorithm. And so apparently when Spotify was rolling out this discover algorithm, they were, there was a bug in the algorithm where, you know, it was designed to serve up new music, but there was a bug where some old songs were getting through. And so they were like, oh, you know, like we want to show people new music. So like, let's squash this bug, no new songs. And what they noticed with their test group was as soon as they like didn't allow some familiar songs in, the user engagement fell off a cliff. And Mm. so this idea of Maya, most advanced yet accessible, is people like things that are new, but not too new and have a sense of familiarity. And so that is really interesting what you said about TikTok and the discover page, because I'm like, that sounds like they've deployed the Maya principle. So yeah, maybe there's one or two things that you see there that are familiar or, you know, whether it's, you know, the person or you've previously engaged or watched that type of content. And then there's going to be more new stuff that's similar to that. And I think that that's something that, you know, you can apply that Maya principle time and time again. And yeah, it's interesting to see how that kind of plays into you know, discovery or, or the network effect within social media as a whole. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. It's not a principle I was familiar with, but I 
the little bit you just explained to me, it sounds really valuable and really apt. It would be really interesting if maybe in a future episode, you're able to talk to someone who has some experience in either designing algorithms or, um, yeah, I guess basically just designing algorithms for social media to figure out like, you know, what they're thinking about, what signals they're looking at and how they're keeping user engagement up while still providing value to people without just, you know, putting junk content on their faces. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I know I should do that. I would also love to talk to Derek Thompson. Derek Thompson, if you're listening, oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to talk to you. You're smart and I love your book. So continuing on this, this idea of you know, looking at all the, the different platforms, you know, we've seen, you know, there's obviously Facebook, Inc. So, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, whatever. YouTube, yep. we've seen, we've seen like significant growth and, and people's attention going there. You know, we've seen, we've seen TikTok shoot up like a rocket, right? Um, oh, yeah. One of the ones that I felt has been kind of hiding in plain sight or that hasn't seen as much hype recently is Snapchat. Do you agree? What do you think about that? Yeah, I definitely feel like, you know, for a lot of people for the last couple of years, Snapchat's been kind of like second tier, if you will. I certainly don't know anything about the inner workings of Snapchat, but I th- there's something about that platform that I'm still just personally really drawn to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's the simplicity of it or, you know, sending snaps that expire or having chats with groups. There's something, I, I, there's so many different, we've talked a lot in this, in this conversation about features and there's so many different features in Snapchat I use. Okay. Not, not a huge user. Don't use stories really anymore. I consume a lot of stories. I very seldom post. I will still send individual snaps to friends or to group chats within Snapchat. Um, and we do a lot of like almost like texting back and forth in different yeah. group chats I'm with and be with somebody you play with filters or like whatever, you know, like if you're like with a niece or nephew, you're playing with filters. Like there's a lot of different like fun, things in there too even if you're just like you know kind of just fooling around but i don't know i just think it's just such an interesting collection of features when you're talking about like the instagram video call to me that's like snapchat as a platform there's just interesting things that are part of it that i think are gonna people are gonna stick around for um even if other people kind of rip it off which is weird because you know we've heard a lot about stories and how you know it's become so successful on instagram and now facebook but at the same time like i haven't abandoned uh haven't abandoned snapchat Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. I have a pair of like the first version of spectacles and I think I, I bought them when we were still at Red Bull and I was like, if I could hack these so that I could record HD video in a tiny camera that like is in sunglasses, this would be awesome for creating various different types of content. Never got around to it. Um, but I think about like, yeah, like they're, I looked, I saw their new spectacles and they've still kind of continued to, to go that route. And I mean, you know, I think they're, I I've, I haven't dabbled in too much, but I think that their, you know, their self-serve ad platform is, is obviously like a welcome thing for, for marketers. Um, yeah, I'm just, I, I always see, I guess the way that I look at Snapchat is I'm like, they they I love how creative they are in terms of like the features they develop. Um, and you know, the experiences that they're able to create digitally for their users. What I worry about is, and, and I think I worry about the same thing with, with house party is like, House Party and Snapchat are the ones who are creating this new awesome stuff. And then all the other kind of big incumbents are just going to sit back and be like, sweet, everything they innovate, we're just going to like replicate it and roll it out everywhere. And if a fraction of our user base picks it up, great success. Yeah. Did you see, I think this news came out maybe like just a few days or a couple of weeks ago that Snapchat is working on syndicating their stories to other apps. I think they're building oh, I, this API that allows different apps to build on top of like a stories platform that Snapchat has enabled. So it's kind of a way of almost connecting Snapchat stories into different publisher apps. And it's almost like they're trying to, in a way, get ahead of more clones and more people ripping off like their, like the features that they've developed. And, you know, maybe it's too late, but, you know, maybe not. Maybe we'll still see more stories on more platforms. And if Snapchat can be part of that conversation, that could be good for them. Yeah, I agree. I, I hope I hope for the sake of, you know, innovation that, that we don't see that happen, right? Like, I, I, I want to continue to see these cool platforms come out of nowhere. You know, like, I think I'd, I had heard of House Party, but like before this week, like not really. But now I'm like, dang, like they've really done some cool stuff. And mm-hmm you know, it would, it would, uh, I, I do hope they survive this. Uh, I'm not saying that they're going to go away, but I like, I hope that it isn't just kind of like their 15 minutes of fame and then it goes away because I think, you know, if they came up with those features that are now obviously being, are blowing up right now in terms of relevance, what else do they have in there? Because I think that's something that, that, you know, we could all benefit from. Definitely. Yeah. And I think with everything that's, that's been going on, it's almost like, 
it forced you into looking for like this new platform or you heard about it because other people were trying to solve this problem. Um, maybe it's not even a problem in the, in the sense of house party. It's just like an interesting, fun thing. People are looking for something to do. It's just in a way, just really good timing for them. Like, and not in like a negative kind of way. It's just, you know, that's kind of how the cards fell. Yeah, right place, right time. So, yeah. okay, as we kind of start to wind things down here, one, one question that I, I always ask is, obviously social changes really, really fast. How do you stay up to date with it? Where do you get your information from? I think I just spend a lot of time on the platform. I probably should read more about it than I do, but I think most of the times I can kind of see what's happening um, as things are launched at least, um, just by staying really in touch with the platforms and the features, just trying to be on the lookout. Uh, I'd say other than that, I am a part of some different Facebook groups that talk about social media. And oftentimes I do get interesting insights from them, but I don't often like, you know, go on tech news websites looking for what's new. I, I couldn't even tell you the last time I did that. <laughs> I'm curious, what, what Facebook groups are you following? The one I probably get the most value from is called the Social Media Geek Out. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like I'm always constantly, I do a ton of reading, you know, whether it's, whether it's on Twitter from following certain, you know, industry leaders, professionals, I am reading less tech websites. So that's interesting to hear you say that I get asked a lot, like, you know, where do you get your information from? And I always, you know, I'm looking at and asking people where they get their information from. So it's interesting to hear you say groups because I haven't really gotten into groups to consume, but I'll, I'll definitely have to check out that social media geek out. Yeah. Like there was uh, just a night, like a few nights ago, I saw, I was on Facebook, downloaded an app update on my, on my iPhone and I opened up newsfeed and I saw this giant F the Facebook F in the bottom center of like my toolbar. And I was like, what the hell is that? And I took a screenshot of it right away. I figured it was just like a test or something. I went into that group and like within a few minutes, there was a whole thread of people posting screenshots about like this change to the app being like, why this? Like, why now? And then the next morning, it was gone from everybody. And there was a whole conversation about that. And to me, that was just really interesting to see me able to connect with people that like want to talk about that. Whereas like, you know, if I went to my girlfriend, and I was like, did you see there's this new like, F in the bottom of the Facebook app, she'd be like, like, so <laughs> like, what's the matter? Um, and like, I, and I totally get that, right. Um, but you got to be really interested in this field and like working it every day to be like, that's really interesting. Why are they doing that? Like, where are they heading with this? Like it just creates so many questions for me and having a community of people to speak to that about to me is really exciting. And that's why I guess I'm a part of a Facebook group like about Facebook because it's something that I'm interested in. That's very meta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Where can people find you online if they want to connect with you and ask questions? I think LinkedIn would be the best bet, which is kind of funny because we didn't talk about LinkedIn at all today. I feel like we didn't talk about LinkedIn or Twitter, but we'll have to save that for another episode. Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks again, dude. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Charlie. Take care. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.